uh, go for launch. Five. Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Anything can happen in the next half hour. Four. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. This whole thing is insane. Three. Quiet, please. I am analyzing. Where's the kaboom? Two. There was supposed to be an earth-shattering kaboom. One. I don't think you can underestimate the contribution Ridley Scott made because it was uh, a, a script that was a sort of ten little Indian script where one person in the crew after another is knocked off. But I think the way it was shot, there were a lot of very innovative techniques that um, that he came up with operating the cameras he did, and and just the whole atmosphere, the the claustrophobia of it, um, the the reality of the sets. Um, the reality of the people. And there was an innocence in us. You know, we couldn't imagine that the people who hired us would, you know, put us in danger like that. And I think that that's what the audience really related to, that big business could actually um, value this killing machine more than they did our lives. So I think politically and, and emotionally and certainly visually, he absolutely grabbed us. The water, all these things he introduced to the feeling of menace. Um, those huge sets, which were like opera sets, our little tiny figures moving around in these, all the chains and the swinging of things and the, you know, and then contrasted with, with little touches like that, that little bobbing bird at the beginning, you know, just all these little sort of familial touches of magazines and food and, you know, the sort of detritus of daily life in space. I think it was a brilliant vision. It's an original. It's like Frankenstein or Dracula, Wolfman. It's just, no, nothing seemed like it before or after. Somewhere in the middle, I remember having a conversation with Yafet, and I said, we're doing a classic, you know, and he says, yeah, we sure are. 1984, is that when he was made? 30, uh, 35 years, it was 79. 1979, yeah. Jesus Christ. Just tell me one thing, Burke. You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back, but to wipe them out. That's the plan. All right, people, on the ready line. Yeah. Item E! Yeah! yeah. Item E! Yeah! yeah. 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 Get down the die! Nothing back here. Look, I'm telling you, there's something moving in. It ain't us. Get them out of there.
over the place. Five meters, man. Four. Aliens. This time, it's war. Greetings, my fellow galactic travelers, and welcome back to Planet 8. This is your mission commander, Larry, speaking to you from our hidden base. Chief Engineer Bob is here by my side as always in the command center, and circling Planet 8 in our orbital spy satellite is Reconnaissance Officer Karen. And on this episode of Planet 8, we're talking about the film Alien and its sequel, Aliens. Straight away, we'll kick it over to Chief Engineer Bob. Bob, this film, Alien, t- tell us a little something. When did you first see Alien? Well, like many of these movies, I did see it in the theater when it came out back in <laughs> 1979. And I vividly remember it because we saw it, I believe it was at the Belmont Theater. And I remember sitting there and it was late in starting. Like, let's say it was supposed to start at 8 o'clock. It was like 8, 10, 8, 15. It hadn't started yet. People were uh-huh. getting restless. And uh, this one guy I went to high school with, Phil Beach, like ran up the aisle yelling, jumped in the air, slapped his hand on the screen, and it started. <laughs> and everybody, it's just total coincidence. But everybody in the audience just started cheering. But... Uh, that was sort of the way that we kicked off Alien. But yeah, it was, uh, I thought it was just amazing. Because for me, you know, seeing, you know, you're coming kind of fresh off of things like Star Wars and Close Encounters. And I like my aliens mean. I like them <laughs> evil. I like them bad. So when Alien came out, that was like, right up my alley that was like perfect that's what i want to see in an alien movie is an alien that's just like out to kill us all so uh <laughs> so i thought it was great you know and i did see you know bob wilkins had previewed it on creature features and things but the amazing thing back then though is yeah we just did that one episode on jaws and we thought it was a a good thing for steven spielberg that the shark didn't work because he couldn't have it in every scene. He had to, it added mm-hmm. to the suspense of not seeing it. Well, with Alien, the Alien worked, and it worked great. But by design, they didn't show it. Right. Yeah, and they definitely did not show it in the previews. So mm-hmm. you really, going into it, you didn't really know what this thing looked like. Because, they, you know, basically they would show the pod, and they had the tagline of, in space, no one can hear you scream. And, yeah, it just looked really cool. Ooh, space and alien, cool. But, uh, yeah, but then when you went in and saw the movie, and just the face hugger and the alien and all the great H.R. Geiger designs, I was blown away. Loved it. Love at first sight in this movie. Well, it, it's interesting, too, because you mentioned Jaws, and I know that the um, the two uh, guys who came up with the original story, Dan O'Bannon and Ron Shusett, their pitch 
to try to sell it was Jaws in Space. So <laughs> Yeah, well, I can see that. Yeah, you know, you, you really don't see the alien for most of the movie. You just kind of see little glimpses, maybe the, the, the shadow or the tail. And uh, again, it's that building of suspense and fear. So, yeah, and, and like you said, the, the ads, you know, this was pre-internet. Um, we didn't really know what we were getting into. They had those terrific trailers, though, uh-huh. you know, where they were going over the planetoid or whatever it was. And, and you'd see parts of the, the letters of alien, just part, parts of the letters would show up and they had that creepy music. And then you start to see the egg and. Yeah, you know, it was kind of like, what is this, what is it going to be about? And you just knew it looked interesting, right? And so you right. wanted to see it. And they so could yeah, kind of get away with that, too, because at the time, because of the success of Star Wars and Close Encounters, anything sci-fi people were going to go mm-hmm. see. You know, it's like, yeah, let, you know, because you didn't have the the competition of Netflix and Hulu and all sure. that. You know, it's like all right, I want to see a sci-fi movie. I got to go out in the theater and see it. You know, so, yeah, the movies like that would come out and you would just be all over them. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I yeah. was a punk little kid and I, I, I was too afraid to go see this rated R movie. <laughs> I'd seen pictures, the space jockey, and like I said, the H.R. Geiger, uh, Bob was saying, uh, the pictures that they were putting out there of the surface of the inner chamber and... I, I was just, I'm out. My cousins wanted to go see it, and I'm like, nah. I'm <laughs> <laughs> see, man, that's like right up my alley. I was like all over that. Well, I remember watching, uh, I think it was, yeah, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the the Leonard Nimoy one in the 70s, and that scared the crap out of me. Oh, that's a scary movie. Oh, that, hold, yeah, that holds so up if, today. We got to do an Invasion of the Body Snatchers episode at some point. Oh, but, sure. But yeah, no, that um, I watched that recently, and that really holds up. Yeah. Yeah, and like One Bob was saying, remakes. he likes his aliens mean, and you know, it, it just, I don't know. It was years later that I saw it, and it was on VHS. <laughs> um, yeah. With the covers pulled over my head. VHS, <laughs> what's that, Daddy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, you, you speak- know, and the thing is, is in, in researching this, and there have been like what, like, 150 different alien films up to this point with Winona Ryder and yeah, uh, unfortunately, yeah. And it really strayed, uh, you know, from the original. And in, in my humble opinion, but um, that first film, and again, that space jockey really made an impression on me um, because it, it looked skeletal, uh, otherworldly yet familiar. Be- I don't know, it was just very bizarre and offset excuse me, offsetting in a way. Um, yeah, and it's yeah. amazing that you say that that really stands out because it was just a prop piece. I mean, it never moved. It was just like yeah. a statue. Exactly. And you know, another interesting thing about that is that was never like a full set. They knew it would be too expensive to build a huge set. So they built just a, a like a quarter wall and they built that, uh, the jockey on a, a like a disc and they could kind of move it around and put put like the wall behind it so it oh. gave the impression of a huge circular chamber um, and they could just move the actors around the, the jockey move the wall behind them so uh-huh. it looked like oh you've got this circular 
you know, chamber, but really they just moved the wall wherever the actors were going to be standing um, so okay, that it gave that impression. But, right. uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, everything was pre-CGI. I will tell you what. I did. This is the one time that Bob was not the only person who saw the movie in the theater. I did get to go see this one in the theater. What? Uh, yes. Uh, my brother, in, right? my older brother, you know, he was going to go see it. So he took me and my friend Leanne uh, along with him and a couple of his friends. And, w- and we got to see this in the theater. And, oh, my God, was I – it was so – scary the whole time right mm-hmm. and at the chest burster scene my friend leanne slammed her hand down on my leg <laughs> she was so scared and i think i might have had a bruise i don't know uh, but it was yeah it was one of those movies where you know everybody's having these like physical reactions again it's a kind of like jaws right everybody's kind of screaming and freaking out in the theater mm-hmm. and stuff um I guess nowadays maybe people would look at Alien and they might not have those reactions because there's certainly been a lot more gory or kind of – but it wasn't it wasn't really rely, – it was relied a little on gore like with the chestburster scene and stuff. But a lot of it was just because it was scary. It was claustrophobic. Right. You well, know, they, had, they, they couldn't get off the ship and what were they going to do? They definitely had the, the jump scenes though. Mm-hmm. Like when the face hugger leaves, you know, jumps out and attaches to his space helmet, or yeah, you know, like the chest burst scene because the the chest burster scene was perfect because you know they're all just sitting around eating at the table and everything's good and you think okay you know the face hugger let him go and he seems to be all right and you know at the time you didn't know that the face hugger was implanting stuff yeah and uh, and yeah and then he just started like getting sick and convulsing and they throw him on the table and then the thing bursts out of his chest and runs towards the camera it's like yeah. and they really you know they like the actors kind of knew what was going to happen obviously but they didn't know everything that was going to happen right and i guess is veronica cartwright that was talking about because she got the bulk of the blood split. Yeah, right her, in the know. face. Yeah. And it was just like, they splattered her a couple times. And a lot of the, the screaming was her really screaming. She didn't yeah. expect that. And she, she really was saying it. at one point she she slipped and fell. Oh, wow. And then got back up and they were still filming. So she had to just keep going. <laughs> but... Uh, I yeah I think she you know you say what you will about Sigourney Weaver but I think Veronica Cartwright did a great job in that movie. Oh yeah, they all did. Yafet Koto. I mean, yeah. it just such a good cast. Well, the casting of that movie is super interesting too because, like Veronica Cartwright, from what I've read, she thought she originally was auditioning for Ripley, and so when she yeah. showed up on set, she thought she was going to play Ripley, and she was kind of taken aback to find out she was not in the Ripley role. But then, you know, she does oh a, an outstanding job. Yeah. As Lambert and like all of those characters, you know, they brought in really good actors who were, none of them were like, uh, you know, superstar leading actors, but it was perfect because they were all, uh, 
like you kind of knew, oh, you might recognize them or whatever, but they were not, you know, somebody who would take you out of the movie. They were they were all really good character actors and very believable in what they were doing. True. Well, you had Sigourney Weaver in the in the lead role, and that was her first movie. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah. And- she wasn't really sure she wanted to do it and they had to kind of talk her into it. And, um, you know, they weren't sure like, wow, she really hasn't done movies. Is she going to be able to handle it? But, you know, sometimes people just have a feeling about someone and they're right, you know? So yeah, it just all obviously all came together perfectly, um, with the casting on this. Yeah. And speaking of like Yafet Koto, I mean, I knew him going into this. I knew him from live and let die. Because mm-hmm. he played right. Kananga in, in *Live and Let Die*, and uh, and just seeing him in this movie, I mean, I loved him in *Alien*. And he did a great job. I thought as Parker, and uh, yeah, he's always wanting. Well, let's talk about credits. Let's talk about you know. <laughs> let's, let's talk, talk about, about the bonus split, situation. You know, the bonus we need to situation. talk. <laughs> yeah, he brings a certain antagonism to everything, you know. Or there's even that one scene where uh, where. Uh, Ripley's like yelling at him and his assistant and they're down in the bowels of the ship and while she's yelling there's all this steam kind of drowning her out and everything and as soon as she like storms off he just reaches up and flips the switch and turns the steam off (laughs) that's great yeah you get the feeling like these are not like like if you're really used to like the officers on the enterprise who are so clean cut and by the book and, you know, proper. And then you see this crew on the Nostromo and and it's like, these guys are sort of very ragtag, you know, not, not at all what you expect if you've been watching science fiction movies for years and years, you know? Well, I mean, they were supposed to be like truckers in space, right? Mm -hmm. There's a bunch of truckers that are just, in a convoy moving stuff from place to place. Right. I, I kind of made a comparison at that point of 2001. Um, you know, the way that the ship looked wasn't clean and pristine and, you know, it was used and it was cramped and it was a functioning ship that all these buttons and valves and, and things were, were part of this mechanism for them to do their job. Um, the only correlation I guess I had with 2001 was Hal and, um, oh, what was the synthetic? Mother. Mother. Yeah. Well, the yeah. computer. So that was kind of interesting, but I, I thought the, you know, you get good actors and, and you put them in a good environment and magic movie magic happens. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it, it's interesting that, um, sort of the evolution of the film you know dan o'bannon is the guy who had the original idea he had worked he had come out of i think usc along with john carpenter um you know a lot of filmmakers uh, coming out of usc and he put together this that film dark star i'm sure you guys have seen it oh, yeah. it was a very low budget movie and they at one point it was a like a comedy um they had an alien in there that was basically like a beach ball. <laughs> and one of his things was, you know, I want to make a sci-fi movie with a real alien, a real, you know, menacing alien. So 
that was sort of where they were coming from with this. And of course, then, you know, he, when they bring it to the studio, then other people get involved. I know there was maybe a little bad blood, I think, between um, him and then, uh, and I'm going to butcher the guy's name, David Geiler or Giller, uh, who was one of the producers and Walter Hill. Those guys went in and did some rewrites and some of the stuff they did included, um, you know, making um, Ash and Android. They renamed all the characters. That's when they came up with the idea of um, making uh, Ripley a woman and having her survive. And so, you know, there was a lot of different hands on the product. And, of course, uh, you know, O'Bannon was saying some of his influences were some of the old, like, 50s sci-fi. I mean, obviously, like, the thing from another world, you know, the claustrophobic thing of being trapped with an alien and well, stuff. Yeah, well, there was a big influence from It, Terror from Beyond Space. Yeah, that's another one. It's funny because, like, O'Bannon was never quoted mentioning that, but, like, having seen It, uh, Terror from Beyond Space, it seems like it should be a reference because you've got the monster on the spaceship and they're having to find out, you know, he's, like, in air ducts and stuff, just like on a- an alien. Um, so... Maybe he saw it and forgot about it, or maybe he just never mentioned it. But, uh, yeah, well, it definitely seems like it should be a, a reference point. Well, that's another excellent jump scene, too, is when uh, Dallas is up in the uh, air duct. Mm-hmm. And they're all, you know, it's coming for you. It's coming for you. It's, you know, right. It's right there. And he's looking around. He can't see it. And he's like, turns around, and there it is, jumps at the camera, you know. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I think that was probably the biggest jump for me in the theater. Yeah, me yeah. too. I think when I saw that, that, you know, you're not ready for it. That's but, when you get a really good look at the alien just for a second where it kind of jumps around and its jaws are sitting there and they're shiny and everything. You can really see its face. That's a really good one. Well, and, and it's, a, it's just such an amazing creation because you've got the mouth opens and then there's the inner mouth that extends out. And while he's doing all that, you've got the saliva and everything else in there. And Oh, I know. Yeah. It's just, well, it's gotta be one of the most amazing, unique creature designs. I mean, Giger had all this stuff he had drawn for his Necronomicon. And I mean, you even see like, uh, the Emerson Lake and Palmer, uh, oh, now I can't remember which album cover it was, uh, but you know they used some of those drawings on one of their album covers, and so he had all this crazy, weird. Uh, you know, it's like sex and death imagery. I mean, obviously the alien has a lot of sexual imagery going into the ship. There's a lot of sexual imagery everywhere. You know, it's uh, kind of. Um, I guess it plays on primal fears that humankind has, you know, mm-hmm. um, more so than any of the other creature designs. Like you can look at a lot of great creature designs. Like I got my statue, my sideshow statue of the creature from the Black Lagoon sitting across from me here. And I was like, that is a great creature design, but there's nothing about that that says like sex and death to me or <laughs> anything <laughs> like that. When you When you look at like the alien, I mean – it creeps you out on a whole nother level. You know, it's just primal. Um, and that's, what's so disturbing. And to read things like, Oh yeah, we used part of a human skull in the mask. (laughs) Oh yeah. 
it's disturbing, you know, so many different like animal parts were used in like putting together the egg or the face hugger. They used like chicken livers and stuff. It's just, well, I mean, it's the, creepy yeah, I mean, and weird. The, the alien himself, I mean, he has no eyes. Yeah. So you don't know where he's looking. You don't know where he's focusing. It's like, he's just there coming for you. The way that they put that thing together, right, the the head, the the fingers, when it had like six fingers and yeah. it was, I mean, up to that point, right, you see the creature from the Black Lagoon and it's like, okay, well, it kind of has like a human form and in the third film he kind of became human. But anyway, that's another <laughs> uh, discussion to be had. I remember going to Toys R Us. And seeing that thing in a package, the, the Kenner. Yeah, the, the Kenner. Kenner. Yeah. I had that. I sold it long Next ago. Next to GI but... Joe. Did you really, Bob? Yeah, yeah. I ended up getting one like years later at a at a toy show, the one in San Jose, and it didn't have the glass cover or plastic oh. cover. Well, yeah. plus it had a little trigger in the back of the head that you could squeeze, yeah, and it, it made the mouth the open and Warriors. the inner mouth pop out. <laughs> Yeah, instead of flame coming out like the Godzilla Shogun Warrior, his mandible shot out and no, that was that was a really cool toy. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I sold it, but <laughs> um, no, I just looking at the design and looking at all the detail, it just amazes me still that it was a guy in a suit. Oh yeah. Oh right, yeah. right. Six foot ten inch, super skinny. Uh, I wrote the guy's name down. I'm going to butcher it. Balaji Badejo. He was a student who was over in London and uh, from, uh, and now I don't remember which country in Africa, but what an amazing guy. And they said he, he studied like Tai Chi to try to get the movements of the alien. But it just goes to show you how, what you can do with practical effects, right? Right. Oh, yeah. And plus, I mean, just there is that one scene where he walks across the camera. And it's just very slow and very deliberate. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and it's, uh, yeah, it's real creepy. But they, it's like, you know, if you know what you're doing when you're filming stuff, and I think even when we trans uh, move over to talking about aliens, because again, it's, it's all in camera practical stuff, um, knowing how to shoot things, how to frame things, you know, if you're using wires, how to make those look invisible. Cause like with the t tail, you know, they had to use wires on the tail and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, they're not going back in and, you know, erasing the wire with CGI or whatever. Well, it's it's you, all being a master filmmaker. Mm -hmm. you, know, you, you have to shoot it and get it right and you can't fix it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if it's something where if there's something where something gets damaged or whatever, you blow that shot and you've got to like build everything back up again and set everything back up and yeah, that's the beauty of practical effects. Well, I, I thought the film ended well too. I mean, you know, she she's the sole survivor. How many people were on the crew actually? It was like there were seven. Seven, yeah. Seven. Seven. And, and uh, seven stranded castaways. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> they were on a three-hour tour. <laughs> <laughs> and the cat and um, Ginger survived. Yeah. <laughs> and and you're thinking, well, that's that's that. What a great movie! And then, like, what? 
10 years later, 79 and Aliens came out in 80... 86. 86. Yeah. And James Cameron comes in and says, well, you know, I want to do something with this, you know, franchise. And he, he comes out with a completely different mm-hmm. tone and film and, and worked equally well as the first one, I think. Well, those, well, you two, know, those two movies were like yin and yang. It was like, yeah, you had the uh, Ridley Scott, mysterious, where is it, who done it type sci-fi film. And then, yeah, you've got the James Cameron all-out action thriller. Space Marines. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, too, because it was really hard to get a sequel made. Um Things were changing hands at Fox right after Alien was made. And then the production company that made Alien, um, or part of the production, Brandywine, there was some kind of issue with Fox. And I don't, I don't want to get into all the details, and I don't even know all the details, but part of what I've heard and read is that um, – Fox was sort of hiding the profits from Alien, and they kept saying, oh, no, it wasn't profitable. We're not going to make a sequel. Oh, because they didn't, would never they didn't want to share the money with anybody. And um, so they kept saying, no, no, we're not going to make a sequel. We're not going to make a sequel. And then finally, I guess around 83 or so, they, oh, okay, we will make a sequel. Um, you know, nowadays you're just like, oh, yeah, immediately. Like, oh, yeah, we'll turn around and make a sequel. Um, so it took like that long and, and, you know, Cameron was making, he was in the process of making Terminator when he, he wrote like this 90 page, uh, script and it wasn't even finished for aliens. He was, you know, this huge thing and he still hadn't even finished it. And they were like, well, okay, if Terminator does well, then you can make aliens. So he was still pretty untested when he went in to make, um, aliens yeah. Well, and thankfully, Terminator did boffo at the box office. Yeah. But yeah, completely different. Oh, I just, yeah, you know, a completely different concept. He wanted to go in a really different direction than the first one, not remake the first one. Which I think was very smart. And I also think, in my humble opinion, of all the sequels, two complements one the most and made the most sense um after that to me they started going in these bizarre directions and uh, not knowing if they wanted to be more action than than horror or more horror than action or an amalgamation of the two it just it never worked for me after the second film yeah i would agree uh, I think it was smart of them to bring Sigourney Weaver's character back, though. And the way that they reintroduced her into that universe, I think, was was very smart. Well, yeah, that. And then, you know, she obviously, because of Ash, she had the distrust of androids. Right. And here, you know, Bishop is on this mission. And she actually, you know, comes to really care for Bishop at the end. So there's that kind of whole arc between them as well. Then you throw yeah. then you throw nude in there. Yo, well, you know that was one of the disappointing things in the third film is they, you know, everyone who survived the first one, other than uh, Ripley. Ripley. But 
Yeah, um, I mean, the whole yeah. concept that, you know, in Star Trek, we don't use currency anymore. We're, we've gotten past war. We're, we're an enlightened culture and, and species. But, you know, in the world of aliens, there's still corporations and there's still greed and there's still I, – I, that was just so – good i mean it worked so well and it still holds up today i mean you know don't trust the corporations well it's kind of the same can kind of be said about terminator and then you know even robocop that came later you know they all had the greedy corporations but also like in aliens you find out that ripley had a daughter yeah in the extended she was in she was in suspended animation for like 57 years between Alien and Aliens, and her daughter was like 66 and had passed away. Right. But. Yeah. I thought that was kind of an odd choice. Um, it didn't. It, I thought the character, it was a little different from the character we had seen in Alien. Mm-hmm. Um to me, I think they were trying to, you know, they wanted to have this sort of mother versus mother thing with the, the alien queen. Well, what, so, what was Ripley in the first movie? What was her position on the crew? She was the warrant officer. She was like the third officer. Right. I don't know. I just. Because they didn't really explain, I, like, you know, how she how she joined the crew or whatever, how she why she was there, you know. But. Yeah, she didn't seem particularly maternal in in any way. Exactly. Um, I don't know. It just seemed a little odd as a choice, but you know, it, I mean, ultimately, Aliens worked as a movie. It just, I don't know that I felt like the the character in Aliens and the character in Aliens seemed exactly like the same character, but mm-hmm. you know, it worked out okay. Well, I, I think the extended cut, you know, they do that just you know for fandom to get a little more screen time of the characters and sometimes those scenes were not included in the final film for good reason um uh, you know i i think the relationship that ripley builds with newt would have been the relationship ripley builds with newt whether ripley had a daughter who had passed or not sure yeah sort of as two survivors i think you could see that happening yeah and, and not sure. that everybody has a paternal instinct, but, you know, if if you were in that situation, you see this little kid, you know, scared, you're, you're going to be like, hey, kid, you're not going to be mm-hmm. like, well, screw you, you know, <laughs> it was survival of the fittest. Well, if you were Paul Reiser's character, you might have. Oh, yeah, some people were. <laughs> he was so awful. It was like, I, you, you couldn't wait for him to to get killed. That guy. He's a great actor because, you know... It, what was that show he did with Helen uh, Hunt? Yeah, I was trying to remember the name of it. I never watched it. But. They were, I never watched it either, but they were so <laughs> endeared to their fans. And, and this... Uh, Mad About You, isn't it? Mad there About You. There you go. Uh, he plays such a creep. Yeah. Oh, so slimy. So slimy. Yeah. Such well, a that's the thing. Yeah, you got you to have some creepy, slimy guy in a movie because then you root for him to get killed. And it's like, <laughs> you, know, you want like the hero to punch him out or you want, you know, the alien to spear him or whatever. But right. that's just like, uh, one. Oh, go ahead, Bob. I was gonna, it's just like James Groden in the 76 Kong. You know, it's like mm-hmm. he was just waiting for Kong Good to point. just stomp on him, you know, flatten him. 
Well, they, yep. yeah, they had another good cast in this one too, right? Uh, I mean, I was going to say uh, right, and the, the Marines. I thought the Space Marines were brilliant, and some of the actors that they brought in there worked so well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, Bill Paxton. Oh, uh, classic. Um, yeah, I mean, and yeah, like you mentioned, Bishop. So you had Lance Hendrickson, you had Michael uh-huh. Bean, and Michael uh-huh. Bean came in last minute. He yeah. came uh, in last minute, right? He he was uh, not the original. James Remar was the original actor who was going to play Hicks, and then there was some problems, so out the door <laughs> he goes, and then Michael <laughs> Bean comes. Yeah, out the airlock, and then Michael Bean comes in like a week into filming, but he was perfect. I mean, he was you know, yeah, right, amazing. Yeah, and then, you know, of course you've got the classic game over, man, game over. <laughs> there were a lot of good little catchphrases out of that. You know, what are you gonna do? Put her in charge? And yeah. So I mean, yeah, Bill Bill Paxton. I think that movie made him. I mean, that was his. I think his biggest movie up to that point. He had been he had a bit role in Terminator. I would argue weird science, actually. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, yeah. I mean, that, yeah, that's great. And, you know, just the character, yeah, is just, he's just whining and panicking and crying the whole time. And, you know, it's funny. You know, the, Shut the up. thing I had, though, and I, I love him as an actor, but he wasn't really badass like the rest of the Marines. He was kind of like... You know, the loose cannon, the the weakest link almost. I mean, maybe he knew his, like, whatever his assignment was, uh, you know, he had knowledge of that particular field. But, man, how did you ever become a Marine? Well, I don't know. I can't remember if, uh, because I watched the extended cut. I I don't remember if it was in the theatrical, but when they're in the drop ship going down, He's like walking around in front of Ripley going, we are badasses. We're going to take care of you. We got a plasma gun. We got this. We got that. And blah, blah, blah. We're going to kick ass. And then, you know, of course, he falls apart on the planet. That that was the extended cut. Yeah. I I couldn't remember if that was in the theatrical cut or not. But, but, you know, he serves his role in the movie. And when he... When he does die, I mean, he's standing there holding his ground like, you want some of this? You want right. some of that? So he goes out heroically. Well, you got to figure, too. I mean, stuff. you know, they're all tough Marines, but they probably haven't faced a situation like this before. Right. They're just like, oh, another bug hunt. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So well, Cameron probably... said that he wanted to kind of reflect Vietnam a little bit. In the movie, in the sense that, you know, maybe America went into that a little overconfident, thinking that, you know, oh, these people are technologically inferior. We can just go in and roll roll over them. And, you know, and you think about it, 86 is a lot closer to Vietnam. I mean, today we look back and like, what what is he talking about? But that wasn't that long after, you know, it was a decade right. after Vietnam, basically. Yeah, so I'm wondering, had they let the Marines keep their ammo packs, would they have gotten their asses kicked as badly as they did by the aliens? And, and I understand the, the concern with the reactor, but, uh, you know, and it, they, well, I, I guess if that happened, the movie would have ended at that point, so never mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, they, no. were do, they were doing pretty good blowing them, blowing them away, but then uh, they had to resort to what? The flamethrowers, right? 
right? Yeah. Flamethrowers only. And, you know, their commander was kind of like green, you know, inexperienced and stuff. I think that probably led to the catastrophe. It certainly didn't help. Yeah. Well, it's nothing worse than being commanded by someone who just has no no business commanding, basically. All right. And at that point, the, the Ripley that we saw at the end of the Alien movie comes back to us and jumps in the driver's mm-hmm. seat of that tank car thing and just, you know, screw it. <laughs> you know, we're getting them out and gain the respect of the remaining Marines. Right. That was she was shown as very capable, which, again, you know, I don't know if I mentioned it earlier, but I mean, seeing a, a woman um, who was like the protagonist of the the movie like an alien and who didn't need to be like rescued. Like nobody showed up and rescued Ripley at the end of alien. She basically rescued herself. So that was kind of groundbreaking at that point in time. Um, And, and, you know, and then in this, you know, she manages to like kind of save the day for the, the Marines. Like you said, Larry, she goes in and crashes the, their ATV or what I don't know what that thing is, oh, a yeah. tank in there and, and the, the survivors get in and they take off. Well, you know, there was a scene earlier before they dropped to the planet where she wanted to help out and gotten one of those, um, oh, whatever the device is, the exoskeleton the to help cargo move. loader. Right. And impressed, uh, you know, the Marine Sergeant. He's like, oh, where, where would you like me to put it? Over there, please. (laughs) (laughs) So the whole concept of, well, we're going to protect Ripley switched. And it's like, well, this woman who survived the first attack, the first contact with this alien might very well help us survive, you know, now a planet of who knows how many aliens. Mm -hmm. Well, it was was just kind of weird in the beginning because I don't know, maybe they didn't introduce her well to the Marines, but yeah, I mean, she was the sole survivor of the last one. She made it through. She defeated the alien and all that. And, uh, but they still, they have like no respect for her whatsoever. Yeah. Or even, you know, her, her position. I don't know if they even made, told them what her position was, you know, prior to that. I don't think they did. I think there was a a veil of secrecy from the quote unquote corporation. <laughs> the company. The company. The evil company. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like I say, you know, they had because they were just looking at her like, what's she doing here? You know, what does she know? Mm-hmm. She's not a marine. She's not a fighter. She, you know. But yeah, and it's like, oh, I heard she saw an alien once. They were like making fun of her and yeah. stuff, right? <laughs> again overconfident about what they could do they got all this equipment and all these guns and everything and they just don't know what they're up against exactly let me ask you guys this how did you feel with the reveal of the alien queen that there was actually this different looking different functioning alien uh, that we'd never seen before just sitting there popping out eggs basically it's like a little bakery popping eggs down the chute (laughs) but 
See, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think revolting for me. I mean, it, it was very graphic, very visceral. Um, you know, I, I won't say uncomfortable like Videodrome, but it, it was just this weird, I, I, which I didn't feel in the first Alien film. It's like you saw the Alien, you're like, oh wow, that's cool. This one is like, wow, that that's just it doesn't make any sense to me. And then when she unhooks herself, and you know goes on the rampage, I was like, holy, you know, crap. Yeah. Well, I know. I, 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 I love the, the slick design of the alien. So Queen Alien, she had the big crest on the back of the head and everything. And so, I know. Uh, yeah. right. Maybe going a little too far. I thought it was, it was an interesting thing to look at, and the sheer size uh-huh. was impressive. You know, like you said, when she kind of pops off and then just starts skittering down the the hallways and stuff it was pretty creepy but yeah there was always that and larry knows because we've seen so many movies together i kind of overthink everything so i was trying to figure out like the life cycle of all the you know because i kind of had gotten the impression like maybe the people kind of turned into the eggs or maybe i'd read that somewhere and so i was like well wait a minute where are the eggs coming from and then so figuring out the whole life cycle of the aliens was a little confusing for me because if she's a queen, sort of like a you think of like insect hives, well, then it's like is somebody mating with her and how many different types of aliens are there? Are there They're you know, aliens. You're overthinking it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but see, then, you then you've got yeah. like – then you've got like Aliens 3 where the, where the face hugger impregnates a dog. So the aliens like run around on all fours through the whole movie, and it's like took on the sort of the characteristics of a dog. Mm-hmm. So well, uh, you know, I, it really depends on where the aliens come from, I guess. Or yeah, they they really did try to sell that because I I will say I, I didn't well I I did see three I didn't really like it too much but. Kenner put out smaller, like G.I. Joe size action figures, and they had like a bull alien and like a. Yeah, all these different aliens and stuff. (laughs) I'm like, they weren't in the movie. What are you guys doing here? Kind of like what they did with Venom. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) right. (laughs) Xenomorph. The Xenomorph. Yes. Venomorph. Let me me ask you guys any, any last thoughts? Any last comments? Anything we missed between Alien and Aliens? Yes, and I'm surprised you didn't bring this up, Larry, because you usually talk about the soundtracks. And you had Jerry Goldsmith on Alien and James Horner on Aliens. Um, So thoughts about the music? Uh, You know, that's a very good point, Walker and uh, Karen. Um, Very similar composers the, you know, the types of music scores that they've done for films two different films and the music although suspenseful um, I'd made a comment earlier uh, or offline about uh, Star Trek 2 there's a, a beat in Star Trek 2 when Spock's going down to uh, redo the main reactor and just the trumpets and stuff uh, James Horner did the start or um Alien soundtrack too, and there's a lot of like bum ba dum ba dum bum 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 bum. It it just works. Um, the the film Alien it was more subtle to me music, and you know it was a suspenseful, scary movie. So yeah, 
Um, well, you know, and, and this, yeah, we did talk about that offline, and I thought it was perfect yes. because Goldsmith kind of has that sense of wonder type music, which fit the first film. And then Horner is more for action and, and that, which fix, fits the second one. But when you mentioned about Horner kind of recycling himself, um, I did contact John DeSentis, who's sort of a soundtrack guru and kind of my go-to on these things. And uh, he says, yes, your ears did not deceive you. Horner recycled himself quite a bit, especially the danger motif, which was used not only for Ripley's rescue, but for Khan's surprise attack on the and the Klingon theme in Star Trek Three. He says also compare the Genesis countdown from Khan to Bishop's countdown in Aliens. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was Yeah. And you know, very we, cool. We, yeah, we were talking about you know, everybody kinda they all have their styles, they all kinda recycle each other. Even like John Williams and others, yeah, they you have recurring themes in different movies that sound similar to themes in other films. Um, I think Larry was saying something about Jasmine and the Superman theme or Right. Superman and Star Wars. She's like, it's the same I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> Stop saying that. <laughs> and then she made a good point. She's like, well, you know, with close encounters is bum 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 I said, Yeah, but with Jaws it's bum 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 but anyway <laughs> well it's like um the the music when bishop has you know picked up ripley and newt and they're taking off from the planet before it's going to explode and it's that dun 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 dun, yeah. dun 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 they use that in so many trailers for years after that <laughs> you would hear that that same music over and over and so he they got a lot of mileage out of it you know i That's mean true. it was it was used everywhere but yeah i after you talked about that, Larry, I had to go back and kind of pull up my Star Trek two and listen to a couple of cuts. And I was like, damned if that isn't the same <laughs> thing. I was just like, wow. And then once you really listen to it, you can't get it out of your head. Exactly. And, so, and sometimes it's, it's like not exactly the same. Like the right, reorchestrated exactly. slide it's, makes it's some slight enough, differences though. and slight adjustments and, because it's funny, because like I'll listen to Godzilla soundtracks and Akira Fukube, he recycles like crazy. But mm. the way it's orchestrated, or the or the tempo, or whatever, I can usually tell. Oh no, that's from this movie, or that's from this movie, that movie, you know. But yeah, I think Horner's kind of the same way. I I don't think he yeah. just like takes his music and sticks it in the other film. He he writes it into that and records it for that film. It may be slower, maybe faster. It may be, you know, slightly different beat or something. But, uh, but I don't know. Maybe a trained ear who's a Horner fan can tell you, oh no, that's the one he used in Con, and that's the one he used <laughs> in Aliens because of, of this difference, you know. <laughs> I'm sure they're out there. Well, they just have things they like to to use, instruments they prefer, and things like that, and, mm-hmm. and just wind up noticing it yeah because yeah. like horners he has like a lot of like bangs and clangs and everything in his music mm-hmm. just, you know a lot of percussion you hear yeah. it and it's like oh yeah okay that's james horner yeah it's good stuff all the way around 
But well, how about you, Bob? Like Any said, laugh? I, th- uh, I think I think those two movies complement each other perfectly, and they should have maybe just stopped at that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. You know, I I'd agree. There, there's always good because I, I forgot about the dog scene. The dog scene in three was interesting and was pretty cool and scary. Um, I don't know. We'll see where you know. And, and we've talked about this before, but it's too bad that Hollywood doesn't come out with more original ideas. Um, you know, like Close Encounters or like Alien. I mean, even though Aliens was a sequel to the first film. I think it's, you know, almost a complete you can watch Aliens by itself and not have seen the first film. It's it's just that well made. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, well, I mean, and I they, think they just uh, there was something on Facebook I saw this week saying that uh, they were going to do a yet another Aliens movie. Mm-hmm. Uh. It's like the cow. That cow has no more milk. I don't care how much you squeeze the udder. There's nothing else coming out. And if something comes out, it's not milk. It's um, done. It's done. She's done. She's got no more. Um, but yes, yeah, like the, the two films together work perfectly because Aliens is a logical extension of Alien. And you're not stretching the story. You're not having to twist and contort yourself to tell another story. It makes a lot of sense. And it's sort of like with Terminator and Terminator 2. It's like, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. He's come back to do this, that, and the other. And that's when those stories work. And when you have to stretch the plot too much, stretch details too much, that's when I think it, you know, you you start finding all these defects in the film. Um, And, yeah, I think, you know, the third one, a lot of people disliked it because – it did go a little too far and, and the killing off Newton and uh, Hicks, you know, these were characters we had come to love and all of a sudden they're like, no, nah, they're dead. Yeah. Ripley's, I forget was she, she had an alien inside of her. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, it was just, they took all the, the goodwill from the aliens and trashed it. So well, her alien took almost the whole movie to gestate. I mean, right. most of the other ones went pretty quick, but you know, she had that thing in her and, yeah, it didn't burst out till like the end of the movie when she's doing the swan dive into the flames. But, mm-hmm. but then there's like Prometheus, and I think they forgot it was an alien movie until almost the end, and they're like, "Oh shit, we better throw some aliens in there." <laughs> yeah. You know, I talked to somebody recently who had seen Prometheus, but they didn't know it was part of the whole alien thing, and yeah, they said, "Oh, I didn't realize it was an alien movie right till the end." Yeah. So you're you're spot on with that. The thing that's frustrating to me is they can't make a good alien versus predator movie. It's like, come on, you've got two great characters that could be great opponents for each other. And yet. Well, actually, Karen, they did. Batman. Um, Batman was involved in it. Well, Batman Dead End is an awesome little film. I would love and I love that suit. Something came up on Twitter just yesterday about what's the best Batman suit. And I said, Batman Dead End. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Um, It was a great Batman, too. I mean, just when he suited up and all those bruises and cuts and, you know, just. uh. But, you know, for for those who don't know what we're talking about, it was like a fan made film, right? And it's mm-hmm. called Batman Dead End. You can look at it. I think it's on YouTube. And it's just a real short film where Batman's going up against the Joker and then suddenly Alien appears, Predator appears, and Batman's got to fight him. And it's 
It's awesome. Yeah, it's what, maybe 10 minutes long? About, yeah. Yeah. If that. The guy, but the guy who made it amazing. was named uh, Sandy Kalura, and he's in the effects business. But, uh, yeah, everything in that was pitch perfect. It just looked fantastic. Nah. I'd love to see a full length. <laughs> I, I would too. It's too good. of that. I'd pay good money for that. Well, actually, uh, Fox was bought by Disney, right? So that takes it further away from DC. <laughs> so you'd have to have like Alien versus Predator with uh, what? Maybe Iron Man throwing Spider Man, Spider Man, yeah. whatever. <laughs> one one never knows. Well, look, guys, uh, we've come to that point in the podcast where it's uh, censor sweep time. And this podcast, our reconnaissance officer, Karen, has come into some intel that she's going to share with us. Uh, Karen, take it away. Indeed, I do. And it's based on our topic of the day. Uh, A very massive tome, which I picked up just recently by J.W. Rinsler called The Making of Alien. This is a book by Titan Press. Uh, Over 300 pages, chock full of photographs and stories and things about the making of just the first movie. Uh, But if you're a fan of Alien, you should definitely get it. You can get it on Amazon and other fine fine, uh, purveyors of books. So, if you like what we talk about today, uh, look for The Making of Alien. I, I will say you guys can't see it, but it's it's not we. It's not very we. It's freaking huge. It's freaking huge. It's a big book. It's a, I was telling uh, Karen before we started recording, that's a coffee table book that belongs on a coffee table when you're going to read well, that's it. Well, a coffee you table have a book coffee that table. you could actually make a coffee table out of. <laughs> that's, that's true. Slap some legs on that thing and you're ready to go. Very true. Well, look, guys, it, it's been real. Make sure you uh, subscribe and like and comment and stay safe. On that note, this will conclude this transmission from Planet 8. We would like to thank all of our intergalactic audience for listening. Be sure to head on over to our website at www.planet8podcast.com where you can get more information on this episode's topic. For more conversation, find us on Twitter at Planet8Cast. Or on Facebook at facebook.com slash planet8podcast. We want to thank you guys for tuning in each and every episode. We look forward to your input and opinions. Until next time, this is Planet 8 signing off. End transmission. By George, he's got it. It is the end. Over, man. It's game over.